This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. Email them at communicorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com to check out all the great Disney vacations you can take. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And we're so excited to be bringing you another history about another random theme park in the American theme park history thing. I, I, I had a point where I was going and I lost I was it like, are again. you getting paid per the word? I mean, kind of. <laughs> this is kind of like a magazine article or a short story. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. I In guess a collection is, yeah. somewhere. Yeah, because we get we get uh, some really great comments when we cover non-Disney theme parks and amusement parks, and we love diving into the history because they're just amazing. Yeah, because, again, well, they're always interconnected with yes. other history segments of Disney-like theme parks. So we we, in, we enjoy it. I'm rambling. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm uh, just yeah. – let's just do it. Okay. It's time for theme park history. Mommy and Daddy, take my hand, take me out to Freedom Land. This was the amazing radio jingle heard during the early 1960s that was just enticing people to visit Freedom Land USA, a short-lived American history-themed amusement park in the Bronx in New York City. The, par- the park, it, you know, it only lasted a little less than five years, but it was highly influenced by Disneyland and really was an example of family entertainment wrapped in a wonderful little history lesson. So Freedomland was conceived by a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, a young Texan who had previously worked in the planning, construction, and management of Disneyland. Hired by Walt Disney in 1953, Wood was the person who selected the Orange Grove site in Anaheim, California, where Disneyland would eventually be built. Wood became very close to Disney during the next two years, but eventually the two, man, uh, two men had a falling out. There are a couple of different reasons for the falling out, none of which are actually known to be 100% true. However, it was apparently so bad that Wood was fired in 1956, and to this day, the company refuses to acknowledge any role that he had in the creation of uh, Disneyland, uh, the, the original theme park. However, you know, who would let a little thing getting fired by Walt Disney stop then? Not C.V. Wood, that's for sure. Nor us. Nor so us. Let's start some rumors about us getting fired by Walt Disney. By Walt Disney, too. before we yeah. were born. Yeah, so so soon after he was fired, Wood began planning and building his own amusement parks. How hard could it be, right? Okay, so in 1958, Wood opened Magic Mountain, wait up, wait, wait, near Denver, Colorado, okay, which closed in 1960. He then built Pleasure Island in, well, wait for it, in Wakefield, Massachusetts in 1959, which closed in 1969. But his crowning achievement was opening Freedomland in 1960. 
as president of the Marco Engineering Company of Los Angeles, and with Hello. his theme park knowledge, uh, having been president of the president of the Walt Disney Company from 1954 to 1956, how could Wood lose with Freedomland? Uh, you know, Wood attracted several former Disney veterans and amassed a design team of 200 leading artists to create a te- uh, park that was arranged into seven theme periods of American history. And the park's original concept was history-based, and the layout was arranged in the shape of a large map of the United States. Guests entered the map around Washington, D.C. And like mentioned, Freedomland was divided into different themed areas based on the history of the United States, each with its own attractions, shops, and restaurants. This made Freedomland a true theme park with one real theme. Now, the land on which the park was built was swampy. And it had been a mill until about 1900, and various reports have it used as a cucumber farm, uh, also a pickle farm, and a trash dump. So, a very wide variety of use for that uh, little piece of land. Um, a municipal airport was also considered for the site until Freedom Land actually came along. And it was placed on 205 acres of the uh, southern part of the 400 acres of marshland. All of that land was actually owned by the National Development Corporation. Uh, a major stockholder, uh, Webb and Knapp Incorporated, also had a inc- uh, controlling interest in Freedom Land Incorporated, which actually operated the park. National Development leased the land to Freedom Land Inc. for $15 million. Groundbreaking ceremonies for Freedom Land took place on August 26, 1959. Attractions were placed on 85 of the 205 acres, which was larger than Disneyland at the time, with 120 acres reserved for about 12,000 cars. The rest of the massive property was allocated for future park projects that never were constructed due to its untimely demise. So the park, when open, uh, could accommodate 32,000 visitors at one time, with uh, I'm sorry, uh, 90,000 coming in during the course of a day. And it actually had uh, 8 miles of uh, waterways and lakes, 10,000 newly planted trees, 18 restaurants and snack bars. There, were, there was a lot in there. Mm-hmm. It, it also cost $65 million to build. And you know, much was made of that cost at the time, with reports boasting that it could have been you know, other things that could have been built for that amount of money, like uh, 22 movie spectaculars, <laughs> or 195 big budget Broadway musicals, or 130 hour-long TV spectaculars. Any of those things could be made aside from Freedom Land. So on June 18, 1960, Freedom Land was dedicated with a ceremony that only had 5,000 in attendance. However, the next day, which was Father's Day, June 19, 1960, this so-called Disneyland of the East opened to a crowd of 60,000 people. The same radio stations playing that jingle we mentioned earlier to promote the park now had to tell people to stay away since it was filled well beyond capacity. So, I mean, we kept mentioning earlier that the park had seven distinct areas, but, you know, we failed so far to mention just what exactly they were. So let's correct that a little bit. The first was Little Old New York. Now, this area featured horse-drawn trolleys, uh, a brewery. There's a lot of breweries lately. Um, It was which was sponsored by the Schaefer Brewing Company uh, and tugboats that were chugging through the city's harbor. And Macy's actually had a recreation uh, of its original store. And, you know, there are other sponsors there, such as the Bank of New York and John's Bargain Stores, which filled up the rest of the area. Uh, The best part of that was probably the political pep rally, which was a live street show that included a German band, uh, an 1880s uh, Tammany speech, rallying suffragettes, and a New York gangland robbery of the little old New York bank. That seems pretty awesome. Not quite a parade, but wow. Um, So, What time is the 3 o'clock robbery going to (laughs) happen? 
<laughs> Where's the best place to stand? So, so next was Chicago. This area focused on the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 and evidenced by a large building that actually burned every 20 minutes. Uh, and, the, and the Freedom Land Fire Company rushed its 19th century water pump to the site to douse the flames. Funny enough, there were some fires on the property before the park even opened that destroyed a few buildings. Uh, and they took up some of the debris from them and put it in the Chicago fire exhibit. <laughs> How amazing is it? How authentic? Wow. It's the attention to detail, I tell you. That's what it is. Uh, the Chippewa War Canoes were also here, which was a boat ride in which the guests paddled uh, the canoes led by an Indian guide. And if you didn't want to power the boat yourself, you can get on the Great Lakes Cruise, which was a boat ride through the Great Lakes on one of the two 110-foot, 400-passenger stern uh, wheel boats, complete with calliopes. Um, it was also home to the Santa Fe, Santa Fe uh, Railroad Station, one of the two station on the, stations on the park's uh, two-foot narrow gauge, uh, Santa Fe Railroad. And the ride itself was only six minutes long. Coming up after that was the Great Plains. This was the home to Fort Calvary, a log-by-log -log replica of the real thing, which had shootouts between bandits and the sheriff. The Fort Calvary stage uh, line and the horse-drawn station wagons were the st uh, stagecoach attractions through the Rocky Mountains and ended in a robbery. Lots of robberies going on apparently in America. There was also an actual working farm sponsored by the Borden Company that showcased Elsie the Cow, their mascot. And there was also a milk bar, a mule go-round, by actual western mules and the pony express which took you to the old southwest area of the park i mean the more we talk about this the more th this theme park seems pretty awesome i'm not gonna yeah, lie a lot of fun so the next area was san francisco and it uh, featured chinatown and the barbary coast entertainment district and they actually had a dark ride there that simulated the great earthquake of 1906 which by the way they seem to be really centered around great tragedies in yes, america yes. which is blowing my mind um, and there was also the Northwest Fur Trapper, which was a boat ride through the rugged Northwest, similar to the Jungle Cruise. That's just... I know, very bizarre. Uh, wild attack beavers? Sure, why not? Okay, okay. Uh, Fisherman's Wharf was also a snack stand that had a salty old seaman telling stories. Uh, the seal pool had real seals just hanging around. And you can also catch the Santa Fe Railroad from here. The Hollywood Arena was added in 1962 to feature animal acts and stunt shows. I wonder if they had any loose seals. <laughs> we haven't had no a good idea. Arrested Development reference in a while. <laughs> so uh, after that was the Old Southwest, which had a borough trail ride. Uh, Casa Loca was a walkthrough house where the laws of gravity didn't exist. And Mine Caverns was a dark ride on an underground mine train through lava pits, giant bats, and cave monsters because cave monsters exist in the southwest um you could even take in a gunfight see the roaming texas longhorns and bison and take in a show at a wild west opera house and saloon and the tucson mining company was an aerial lift ride to the top of the rockies in gondolas designed to look like bucket ore cars i mean sounds great it does now, next up was New Orleans, which had a ride on a correspondence wagon through a Civil War battle. You know, and it went through all these uh, recreations of the American Civil War battleground uh, camps, derailed trains, burning houses, and of course, ends in the middle of a battle. Again, <laughs> this focus on these horrible things. I can't believe it. 
Uh, there was also the Crystal Maze, which was the world's first glass-walled house of mirrors uh, maze. The Tornado Adventure, which was a dark ride that simulated driving through the cone of, Lu- of a Louisiana twister. And Buccaneers, which was a boat ride very much like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And Frito-Lay also sponsored a Mexican restaurant here that introduced the Sloppy Joe. Oh, uh, so <clears throat> finally, there was Satellite City, which was focused on the growing popularity of space exploration. Blastoff Bunker was an authentic reproduction of a Cape Canaveral control room in which visitors could witness a simulated rocket launch from start to finish. Moving Lake Walk was an automated moving sidewalk across a lake. Should have guessed that one. <laughs> and uh, it's where the Satellite City Turnpike, there was also a miniature automobile ride in futuristic cars. There was also Space Rover, a simulation of a space journey in a 250-seat theater designed to look like the inside of a rocket. It also had the Moon Bowl, which had the largest outdoor dance floor and a stage for popular performers to attract older teenagers and young adults. So what happens next in the Freedomland story? And how was the park received during its first season and its subsequent seasons after that? And really, eventually, what led to its downfall beyond that? So we're going to take a little break here because the story gets a little more interesting beyond this. We're going to continue this in the next episode of the show, uh, episode 214, where we're going to explore all of that and let you know why it failed. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. Well, it's no secret that we both loved the Force Awakens film, since we both probably each spent a couple million to go see it a whole bunch. Probably. Um, probably. Uh, it was a really great film that spoke to the current generation of film audiences. And a lot of people complained about it, you know, sort of rehashing a lot of the elements from A New Hope. But The Force Awakens was still an amazing movie. And we've also been reviewing a lot of great Star Wars books lately. So when the novelization of The Force Awakens by Alan Dean Foster showed up, I knew we were both really really excited yeah i mean especially because foster wrote the original uh, novelization of star wars back in the 70s even though it was credited to george lucas on the cover but that, but that's okay that's okay um and I, I really liked reading the book and seeing the differences and was kind of excited to see foster really dive in and expand the story of the force awakens a little bit more and did he yeah. do that i mean yeah because you know most novelizations offer you some differences from the final film You know, sometimes it can be really minor, and other times it can alter the story dramatically. And with the novelizations of A New Hope and even The Phantom Menace, which shall not be named again, there were a lot of smaller plot points that fleshed out the story and offered insights into the characters. And, you know, The Force Awakens novelization was very, very close to the final film, which is good and bad, but but mostly good. But mostly good. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, there were a small, you know, handful of things that brought a little more insight into what <laughs> was going on, kind of. Um, I mean, for example, it was interesting to hear about Leia's strained relationship with the, the the Republic now and how they merely tolerated, you know, the Resistance existence. Mm-hmm. Which, and I just read today that there's actually going to be a book. Uh, I think it's Ooh. called Bloodlines. It's coming out in May. That, ex- that you know that explores that theme a little bit more. But it was cool to see that Ooh. kind of introduced a little bit in this novel. Good. I'm excited about that too. So, um, yeah, there were several moments, you know, like when a scene was obviously much longer in the film, but it was cut. Uh, in one case, there's a conversation with Leia and another character that offers more details about a possible relationship or something. Maybe. I'm not going to say anything. But overall, the book really did follow the film beat by beat, including almost all the dialogue. 
And, you know, having said that, some of the beats, to me, just didn't translate well to the book. You know, there's that epic fight in the film between Finn and the baton-wielding stormtrooper, and it was amazing, and it lasts literally for one sentence in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was great. It was so good on screen, and I was just like, yeah. oh, that's it. It's over now. Oh, well. <laughs> so, you know, it, it makes me think that maybe uh, this book is really for the fans of the film. You know, there's not enough insight into the story to warrant interest for the casual fan for them to learn something but it's a close enough read to the film that'll that it will tie people over to the blu-ray release you know because kids that's what we did before blu-rays we exactly read the books um you know granted i loved reading the book especially the last half of the book once the story was really cemented and you had it going on so it really is easy for me to recommend it I mean, if you hate movies, and I'm not talking about Star Wars, I'm talking about if you just hate movies, period, or, you know, you're never going to see a movie ever again, but love Star Wars, and obviously this is totally for you as well, but definitely, you know, hardcore Star Wars fans will be interested in seeing, you know, a small little peek behind the curtain, but also relive a great movie without having to go to the theater and spend another half a million dollars to go see it again. Although I probably will. I mean, more than likely, yes, but... Yeah, more than likely, so... Okay, so this week's book was The Novelization of The Force Awakens, by Alan Dean Foster. Here's another minute that you can't get back. It's the 60 Second Review. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was just released on Blu-ray. Again. Again. Yeah, I know. I forgot about that. So granted, this is a film that I've owned on Laserdisc, VHS, DVD, and as Jeff reminded me, on Blu-ray once already. Not 8-track yet. So (laughs) it's obviously a film that I love. And everyone should be really familiar with the historical value and the story. No sense in going over the story. So that really brings us to the question of whether or not you need to buy another copy of this film. Yeah, I mean, we did just get a Blu-ray version, the Diamond Edition, in 2009. So what is the difference here? Uh, Well, this uh, version is actually the first of the new Signature Collection, which has a replica of Walt Disney's signature on the cover of the disc. So, you know, it's got that going for it. Mm -hmm. Um, It also features the same exact audio and video presentations found on the previous uh, Diamond Edition. So, you know, it's kind of the same. But there are a couple of new extras that have been added with some of the older ones carrying over. Um, And there's also two that are slightly altered from that first release, but the Diamond Edition, it it still has more features than, you know, this new one. Yeah, I totally forgot that I had that. I was like, oh yeah, I do have another copy. So um, I did spend then a lot more time investigating uh, and trying to enjoy the extras as much as I could. Yeah. You know, even just perusing the titles of the extra shows off a lot that you can still be excited about with the the film itself. Uh, Can't ignore the film. It looks wonderful. It sounds amazing. And if you don't already own it on Blu-ray, then you really need to pick up this edition of it. Uh, right off the bat, the extra, you know, um, <clears throat> Snow White in 70 Seconds rap uh, was really pointless and weird. It's not for us, I guess. No. And there was also the the Seven Facts You Didn't Know segment, except Sophia Carson's really cute. All right. So, you know, got to give her that. that. Got to give her that. So. Um, I mean, I did enjoy the new piece with Walt talking uh, mm-hmm. about, you know, the, the the film and the time period, and it was set to archival footage. That was cool. Yeah. And for something that's called the signature collection, I, I personally felt there should be more of, you know, that type of thing. That would have made sense, as opposed to a terrible rap song about the plot. <laughs> um, and there's also this really bad, terrible promotion piece about people who are 
literally making money off of tie-ins to the film, and it just didn't fit with the rest of it. It just seemed really out of place, honestly. Yeah, and I was kind of surprised that you didn't want to, uh, or want me to color coordinate my clothes with a random character from the film while we did this review. I mean, you could have, but one, no one's going to see it, and two, I'm colorblind. So, I mean, really, at the end of the day, you're only doing it to serve your own purpose. <laughs> yeah, we don't communicate weekly bound. No, we so, don't. Well, I mean, we do quite. literally every day as ourselves. Yeah, that's but. true, we do. We do. So the, so the Disney bounding, as we're talking about, was interesting, sort of, because we sort of know some of those people. Yeah. Um, but the iconic, wow, iconic iconography that's not right it's icono iconography the iconography short was pretty strange and saying it was really difficult yeah apparently <laughs> um so i sort of liked it but it was that's when jeff was talking about people making money off of disney anyway so uh, you know i still enjoyed a lot of the 2009 extras and i think we watched so many extras i had forgotten about most of them so it was almost like i saw them for the first time I mean, kind of. That kind of counts. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's nice to see them again. But really, at the end of the day, they are on the disc that we got from a few years ago, unchanged mostly for the most part. So it's kind of repetitive. Um, in this wave of, like, modern and hip quote-unquote stuff, you know, populating extras on the disc, because they've been doing it more and more lately, it really yeah. has nothing to do with the magic of the films, and it's kind of upsetting. I mean, I want more on the film itself and not what some designer is doing based on, you know, the film. Yeah, you know, like they, they did interview a lot of Disney historians for the 2009 segment on the history of the Hyperion Studio, and I really wanted to see more extras like that. As Jeff mentioned, this is the Walt Disney Signature Collection. You figured there'd be something with a lot more historical value to it. Um, it, it the hip, the Wow, the Hyperion Studio time, right, when Snow White was being done, really is a fascinating time period, and it's one of the most successful and productive moments in the studio's history itself. And, and, and you know, hearing the accounts from the artists at the time really put Snow White in its historical perspective. And anytime we learn more about the Hyperion days, it's a really good thing. Yeah, of course, of course. But you know, really, all of that said, you know, the video and the audio of the actual film look fantastic, like George said. And you know, it's the same trance for sure. It still looks pristine. If you don't have it on Blu-ray already, you definitely yeah. should. And you know, Walt's folly has never looked better. So why try to fix what isn't broken? I mean, it's perfect. That's true. So if you don't have it, it's worth picking up, but there's not enough in the extras to warrant another purchase. Unless you're a completist. Which most of us are. Most of us are. So, all right, this week's 60 Seconds Review was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on Blu-ray. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. At the Magic Kingdom version of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, there are a lot of goats, both actual animatronic goats and five-legged goats, at, for that matter. So, especially after the, the refurb a couple of years ago, they, they really put a whole bunch of stuff in there. But this week's goat can be found on a telegraph board uh, when you are entering, entering and waiting in the queue itself. So there's a telegram to the mining company from the sheriff of Tumblewood. Uh, Tumblewood? It's Tumbleweed. I thought it was tumbleweed, yeah. Is it a tumbleweed? It is tumbleweed. Sorry, my, my a, mistake. A typo. That's okay. That happens. That it happens. happens. Sorry, we're not perfect. So, tumbleweed, which is the fictional town where the ride is located. And the, the telegram reads, A word to the wise. Theodore, Theodore Ogilvie uh, and Amos. Oh, my gosh. Amos. It's, it's Amos. Amos. Guys, Amos. I'm getting, I'm getting tongue-tied. Yeah. Amos Tucker may be headed your way. They used to ride with the Stillwell gang, but call themselves the Hash Knife Outfit. 
I wouldn't say they are dangerous, but if brains were dynamite, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so pretty much the entire thing is a reference to the Apple Dumpling Gang, uh, because Ogavi and Tucker work for the evil Frank Stillwell before going off on their own and calling themselves the Hash Knife Outfit. And in real life, actually, the Hash Knife Outfit was a slang term for Arizona's Aztec Land and Cattle Company, uh, which uh, the brand itself resembled a hash knife. And their cowboys were actually known for their lawlessness, so it kind of fits together. It really works out really well. I just I can't imagine the hash knife being a really scary. I mean, I like hash. I mean, I keep thinking like hash browns. Yeah, or like a, a knife tag. to cut the hash browns. Yeah, we could be the hashtag outfit. Hey, that works too. That works too. You just be clothes with a hashtag on it. Sure. Or something like that, maybe. That works. Wow. Okay. So obviously, with this banter, we have reached the end of the show, and it is time for our announcement for our year, the winner of the year of a million or so limited time cadets. And as a reminder, before we get to the winner. You can still be part of this contest. We've got the better part of a year, not quite, but close, We're to give, close. giving away a weekly prize. Just email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday so we can mail you out a prize. And this week's prize is going to Chris S. in Staten Island, New York. Hooray! And that's a fairy godmother travel Disney Oh, that's right. This pack. is. I'm so sorry. I meant to mention that. I got so excited about about just giving out prizes left and right. Where it was, yeah. So we'd like to thank again Fairy Godmother Travel for helping us with this year of a million or so million time cadets, because that's a lot of prizes. Yes, it is. Yes, it so, is. But don't forget to enter. Email communicorweekly at gmail.com, and you can be part of this contest. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show, I mean, if you, you listen via a podcast app, you know, leave us a rating on iTunes or leave us a comment on YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or corrections. No, catapults? Catapults yeah, email cool. us at catapult. That's, That's fine. fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll that. make it work. Um, you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, you can always give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And make sure you visit the Communa store at CommunicoreWeekland.com, where we've got some amazing t-shirts. And you can get the Communicore Weekly, the musical. Heck yes. And yeah. soundtracks, too. We always forget right, about soundtracks. soundtracks. Those are there. The season one soundtrack is still there. That's right. Um, and, of course, there's still plenty of time to get your official uh, Communicore Weekly stickers and membership card. Just send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly. Find out how you can help support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Autofocus.